Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. I'm delighted to say that this week we have Siobhan McHale uh, on the podcast, who has written The Insider's Guide to Culture Change, Creating a Workplace that Delivers, Grows, and Adapts. Siobhan is the Executive General Manager for People, Culture, and Change at Dulux. And before that, she was the Head of Culture Change Program at ANZ and, and led a seven-year change initiative at, uh, at the Australian-New Zealand Banking Group, ANZ, and that transformed it from the lowest-performing bank in the country into one of the highest-performing and most admired banks in the world. And so, I, as I always like to do on this podcast, I like to have uh, thought leaders and thoughtful people who are leaders who actually apply their uh, methodology or even develop their methodology through application in the real world and action. And so um, Siobhan uh, comes to us uh, in that capacity. Siobhan, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. Great to be with you this morning, my time in Melbourne. Yeah, thank you for joining us at 6 a.m. your time. So I, uh, I, I appreciate that. Um, okay, Siobhan, I want to just start with some of the basics, right? And we're going to talk about the methodology and the case study and, and ANZ. But let's start with what is culture? Yeah, and, and culture, I often say, is one of the most talked about but often least understood concepts in workplaces today because many people think of it purely in terms of employee engagement. So they think of it just about the experience that employees have in the organization, but actually it's much more than that. And it relates to how things operate from how you design to how you manufacture, how you sell your products or services. So you can decide to create an adaptive culture, an agile culture, a customer-oriented culture, a strategic culture, a disciplined culture, quality, you know, the list goes on, but yet we have this misconception that it's just about employee engagement. So uh, I think it's much broader and it actually goes to the heart of how you're performing or not performing as an organization. So I agree with you. And, and, and also culture, what, what you're saying, and I'm going to say it in slightly different terms, but tell me if I'm understanding this correctly. Culture exists for the sake of something, that we develop a culture or we do our best to develop culture or a culture exists, you know, despite our efforts, but at, at, in order to achieve some outcome or driving towards some objective or outcome or way of being in the world. Right. Thinking about this correctly? Yes. Yeah, so when Peter Drucker said culture eats strategy for breakfast, often I say, well, culture and strategy are not in competition. It's actually that culture enables strategy. Right. And when you, you start with where you want to go and then the culture is about well, what is the enabler from a cultural perspective. Right. So I was recently in a conversation with Marcus Buckingham who writes about this and he protests vehemently against the idea of culture. And, and what he says is that every organization and, and the, he sort of talks about his research, every organization is built of lots of different teams and functions, all of which operate differently and uniquely and that 
who manages you determines the culture that you exist in in an organization versus the larger organization. And I wonder if you could comment on that or have your, you know, kind of perspective on, you know, is there really an organizational culture or are all organizations filled with, you know, a multiplicity of cultures based really on who the particular leader is of that area? Yes. Well, for me, um, culture, it's a bit like the distinction between the dancers and the dance. So the dancers are the behaviors or what's happening in the individual parts, but the dance is the, the bigger picture. It's the collective agreements held. And uh, yes, sometimes it is difficult to see what those are at the organizational level, but they are always there. And it is, it's the pattern what are the patterns of relatedness between the parts because they are greater than the sum of the parts and they show up in nature. So we see patterns in the structure of a, the leaf of a fern. We see patterns in families where often those in the families can become blind to these collective patterns or agreements. And we also see them show up in our workplaces. So over 30 years of researching and studying this, I can see uh, the patterns that connect in an organization. And that is what the culture is. And so what I'm curious about is the culture of different parts of the organization. So I think when I think of my work, right, and I think of I go into a sales organization and there's a certain culture in a sales organization that, for example, feels distinct to me from the culture in the engineering organization. I'm thinking of a high tech company or from, you know, you're thinking of in your organization, maybe in, in deluxe, maybe it's in manufacturing. If I if I was an engineer trying to sell Right. I, I'm like to the extent that a culture is a set of agreements about how a business operates or how things work around here in order to achieve a certain objective, that if I'm, you know, a, an engineer and I and I and I operate the way sales operates, I'm going to run into a lot of trouble because that's not the culture of engineering in general, but probably in an organization compared to the culture of sales, which is different, which in in my experience creates a lot of tension sometimes between areas of a business because the cultures that the individuals are operating in and the cultures of the organizations that they're operating in seem to be very, very different and sometimes in intention. Does that, have you experienced that? Yes, very much. And often what I talk about is the role. How do the roles of the different parts see themselves and what is the connectedness between them? So an example that can sort of talk to that and what you're saying is when I walked into ANZ Bank that you mentioned in Australia for the first time, one of the things that I noticed was the sales in the branches, there were 700 branches and they had one particular way of operating, but they were taking up their role as the order takers, just waiting from the instructions from head office. Right. And head office were taking up the role of the order givers. And the relatedness between the head office and the branches was a blame pattern you're to blame for the poor customer service. And that blame pattern was going around and around and leading to the worst customer satisfaction scores of any bank in the, uh, the country. 
So the culture was the relatedness between those two parts and this blame pattern. Now, to Marcus Buckingham's point, he would say, well, no, culture is just about what's happening in one part or what's happening in the other part. But actually, if you just went in and said, oh, well, it's about the parts, it's about just the branches, your intervention might be different. You might say, well, all the branch staff need to go on customer service training. But actually, that would have been the wrong intervention because the right intervention was to reframe the role of the different parts. So we reframe the role of the head office from order givers to support providers to the branches, giving them risk and HR and IT services. And we reframe the role of the branches from um, order takers to service providers to the customer. And that reframing through a new operating model shifted the ways of relating and ultimately the culture. I love that. So, so you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is, there actually are different cultures to different parts of the organization, and that's a problem. Meaning, and it's a problem because if they're not all working towards some overall objective that they can kind of approach consistently in a way in which they build trust to get there, then, then you're gonna to continue to have this discord. So, so that your approach is to say, it may be true that there's these different cultures and as, as a senior level executive in an organization, we have not only an obligation, but an opportunity to develop a more uh, unified culture so that everybody's working towards some kind of common goal. Yeah, and often it's in how the different parts frame their role. So if head office is framing its role as an order giver, and you have an order taker, then that's a problem because their relatedness is not functioning to the best, um, sort of like giving the best outcome to the organization. So you reframe the role, which is one of the four steps I talk about. By reframing the role of the parts, you can get a different way of taking up the role. So you reframe to a support provider and service provider, and a different relatedness starts to happen. You rewire that relationship between the two parts, and then you get much more effective ways of working. So let's go through your sort of four elements or the four stages, the four pieces of this puzzle? Yeah, so the first uh, step where many managers take a wrong turn is they rush very quickly to solutions when it comes to uh, change. And actually what you need to do is diagnose what's really going on. So just the conversation that we had, many managers would rush in to say, well, let's just put in some training for the branch staff rather than see what's really going on in the organization. So that's step number one. Step number two is reframing. How can you reframe the role of the parts in order to get faster change with less noise? Then you go into breaking the patterns, the dysfunctional patterns between the parts. And I give lots of examples. And then the fourth is keeping your foot on the on the change accelerator and consolidating your gains over the longer term. So so let's go through these and it's and you know you have a consulting background from PwC and this sounds like you know sort of solid consulting methodology. It sounds like there's like a you know like I could see the lineage of 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 the model. Um, diagnosing what's really going on. So my question about that cuz you have a lot of detail in the book too about how how to do this and how to go forward with it. Um, it, what's, what, what you've already described is you have to be very, very careful not to die. You know, it's the, that story of the blind people touching different parts of the elephant 
and nobody's seeing the whole elephant because you see, oh, like a trunk, like a big tree or like a, a stone, like a tusk, but, but no one's necessarily seeing the whole thing. And that's something that happens in organizations all the time. So a key element of diagnosing what's really going on is getting the bird's eye view and saying, what are the systems that are in, interacting with each other that are maybe causing friction or enabling success? Am I thinking about this correctly? Yes, correct. How do, you, how do you do that? One of the key ways you've got to do it, I think, is step back from it rather than, I mean, I, I was asked by the CEO of an infrastructure company, for example, to come in and help them create a more commercial culture. Uh, one of the things that they wanted to do was put all their top 200 managers through a skills training course, teach them how to be more commercial. And actually, that wasn't the problem. We needed to step back and see the role that they were taking up in relation to their clients. So they had been in a, a an environment where there wasn't a lot of competition and they had been in role of relationship manager satisfying the client needs there was a margin on top so all they had to do was just keep satisfying and making the client happy in a commoditized world they needed to manage their margins much more carefully but they kept on doing favors for free for clients so we actually had to reframe their role from relationship managers to commercial managers and that reframing was part of changing the culture rather than just a sheep dip approach of sending everybody on a two-day skills training course. So how did you discover what the real problem was that was going on? I mean they say, you know, and this is true for me, anytime a client comes to me and says, here's what we want you to do, my question is always why? Like what's the problem that's leading you to ask me for this solution because I don't necessarily trust that they're asking for the right solution because my job is to make sure that what I deliver is a solution to the actual problem that they're having. So when someone asks me, you know, what to deliver X service, my question is, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Is, mm. that, is that your entry point to diagnose what's really going on? Yeah, uh, similar to you, often managers have a view of what the solution is and they come in, they say, I need you to run this training or I need this new policy or procedure. And the thing to do is to resist the temptation to move quickly to that solution and to get them to agree to do a diagnostic, I call it. So when you spend the time doing a diagnostic, you start to interrogate what is going on in the different parts. So what are the branch staff saying? What are the head office people seeing and experiencing? And stepping back from that and saying, well, what's the relatedness between these parts? If I just went with what the manager want, I'd be doing a customer service training for all the branch staff. But you step back from it and you always say, what is the pattern here that is connected? Where is this behavior being fueled from? And then you start to see the relatedness, our head office, they're in this role of order giver and the branch staff are in the role of order taker. What is the solution to that pattern of relatedness? And it may not be skills training, it may actually be a reframing of the roles of the parts and that may mean a new operating model, for example. So you put a, a lot of um, stake on the way people think about their roles, that culture is very determined or the, the, you know, sort of patterns or agreements that determine how a business operates, which is how you define culture, right? Uh, patterns or agreements determine how a business operates. 
um, you know, how things are working around here, that that is determined largely by how people think about the role that they're playing in the organization or in the system. Correct. So if you think about even a, a simple example that I talk about in the book about Sarah Connors, she gets up one morning, greets her husband, Mark, good morning in role of wife. She goes down to the kitchen and meets her nine-year-old twins and steps into the role of mother and gets them ready for school. Then she gets on the train and commutes to New York where she's the head of department at a New York hospital. That morning, she steps into role of teacher as she meets first-year medical students. That lunchtime, she has a meeting with her boss to negotiate um, new imaging equipment uh, because she's head of the department. And later on that day, she bumps into a colleague who asks her for a diagnosis about a, um, a patient, and she steps into role of advisor. Now, Sarah is the same person, the same authentic Sarah Connors through all of those interactions, but the mental map that she holds of her role changes how she behaves in each instance. So our mental maps are like a GPS in your car. And if, you, if you've got uh, an old version of a GPS, you can head down the wrong road. Uh, you need to update the GPS or update the mental map when you're going through change in order to help people to shape and shift their behavior. Do people resist when you want to come in and reframe their roles? You're not necessarily telling them that you're reframing your roles as a leader, but um, you're helping them to see that the imperative has changed. So, for example, in the ANZ example, when we when we did the work with the branch staff, we were basically revealing to them that their role was to serve the customers and we were lining everything up so that they could do that easily. They had the right systems, the right processes, the right metrics, because nobody wants to be changed. Uh, but as a, as a manager, often you're looking for signs of how do people see their role and how do they how do we actually need them to be framing their role in order to best achieve their objectives? So, for example, at the moment, I'm working at Julux Group, and um, we've just reframed the role of the top 200 leaders to say, well, you were in role of crisis manager, but now your role is shifting to ambiguity navigator. We're going into a time of economic recession where there will be challenges, but also opportunities. So you need to be able to navigate in these times of uncertainty in order to ensure we survive and thrive through this period. So just that simple reframing from crisis manager to ambiguity navigator gives them a different mental map and an understanding of what's required. Well, and it feels like there's a step that you're not articulating specifically, but feels really important and I think is implicit, which is the clarity of what it is that we're all trying to accomplish collectively and in alignment together, right? To be able to say, you know, together, our objective now is to manage the success of the business in an environment of ambiguity. Like, that's what our goal is. That's what we're going for. So mm -hmm. given that, then, what is the role that you can, can play in, in doing that? Am I thinking about this correctly? Yes, you've got to be scanning the whole system and having an understanding of what the requirements are. 
And by role, I don't mean a job description. That's your described role. And often there are pages and pages and it causes more confusion. This is a distillation of where are we at, what's emerging, and what role do you need to step into at this time? And indeed, that role can change just even in one meeting. Often we don't um, really appreciate that even in one meeting, you might be in role of listener, role of presenter, role of challenger, role of motivator, role of clarifier. All of those roles can exist just simply in one meeting. Uh, but often we're not flagging the role that we're in either with people. So they're not really understanding fully where we're coming from. We don't always signal that or, or put that on the table or talk about the role that we're, we're stepping into. So we diagnose what's really going on. We really understand the objective and the, the focus and the vision and the purpose of where we're headed. We reframe people's roles. And, and understand that's not job descriptions, but we reframe their roles. And then we break... Individuals are in the parts. So that can happen at the individual level, the team level, the department level, or even as a whole organization, different levels of role reframing. Great. And then we break the patterns. And I'm, I'm super interested in this step because I have both seen it happen in an instant and I've seen people spend decades trying to break patterns unsuccessfully. And one of the key differentiators in my experience is the top leader. And I'll, I'll, I'll sort of give this example because I've seen it multiple times in, in one place, which is, you know, I'm thinking about a bank and you're talking about ANZ, which is a bank. I'm thinking about, you know, Goldman Sachs and I'm thinking about when, um, when there's a change in leadership, right? And actually this happened in American Express also. Lou Gerstner was running American Express. Lou Gerstner left. Harvey Golub stepped in. Literally, Harvey Golub wore suspenders, right? A stupid thing. But within three weeks, and I was doing a lot of work in American Express at the time, within three weeks of Harley, Harvey Golub stepping in as CEO, a third of the men were wearing suspenders, right? <laughs> it's like a stupid little thing, but it's like, and I don't think they would ever say, I'm wearing suspenders because Harvey's wearing suspenders. But, but it's, it's this sort of natural thing. And I've seen at Goldman Sachs, where leadership has changed multiple times between a leader who steps in who came from an investment banking background and a leader who steps in who came from a trading background. And when those leaders change over, when there's a change from an investment banking CEO to a trader CEO, the culture of the bank changes. People change, their roles change, literally the people themselves change. And so it's like instant pattern changes based yeah. on who's at the top leadership level. And, and I'm curious about what you've seen around that and other ways that you can break a pattern, maybe when it's the same leader who's wanting to break a pattern, but maybe they themselves are stuck in an old pattern. Yeah, and I think you, those are great examples of the power of patterns and how patterns can capture you almost immediately. And I think how you break them is you, you, know, you become aware of the patterns. So I worked with one CEO uh, in an engineering company and he complained to me, he said, uh, Siobhan, I'm just really frustrated. I've asked my head of marketing to install this new advertising billboard on the top of the, the, the head office roof so that we can get more signage and more visibility of the brand. But, you know, three months later, that sign still hasn't appeared and it speaks to this culture that's not performing quickly enough. And 
I asked him, I said, well, Bill, just talk me through what's been happening. And actually what emerged was that he'd had conversations with every member of his leadership team about this problem, except the head of marketing. So he wasn't having the tough conversations. Right. And I pointed this out. I said, oh, so you've talked to everybody, but you actually haven't talked to George about this problem. And in that moment, he began to realize that actually he was co-creating this pattern of lack of accountability and poor performance in the organization. In that meeting, he decided to change his role and he called George up, had the conversation with him. And from that moment, the, converse, the culture started to change because he stepped out of the role of Mr. Nice Guy, trying to be nice and liked with everybody, which was the culture in the organization, and into the, the role of um, Mr. Real, you know, giving, you know, being real, having the conversations that mattered. And uh, seeing his role in co-creating that pattern was crucial in breaking the pattern. And the organization started to see an up, uh, an up, an uptick in, in terms of its financial performance. So I'm curious about the challenge of what you're describing, because what you're describing makes total sense in a world, and you have a psychology degree, focus on organizational psych, but a psychology degree. And, and it's like, it's like, oh, let me show you this blind spot. You don't see that you're not having this hard conversation. Go have that hard conversation. Everything's solved. And, and in my experience, it's a little bit more challenging than that, and that there's all sorts of layers of things. And you, you talk about the 32,000 employees changing their behavior at ANZ, and you write that their, quote, that their new relationship building skills enabled them to replace the, you gave them relationship building skill training, and that their new relationship building skills enabled them to replace the blame game with a sense of their own role in solving problems. And I found myself wondering, like, but isn't a culture of blame much deeper than like having the skills to build relationship that that it's not simply an issue of skills. It's a simply, you know, it's an issue of everything from as deep as like, am I enough? And what does it mean if I failed or if I'm accountable for something or if I haven't succeeded, you know, to uh, to to real disagreements about kind of who's stepping up and who's accountable. So I'm curious about the real underlying challenges of changing that kind of a pattern or those kinds of behaviors? Yeah, and that's a great question. And that change did take seven years. These are complex adaptive challenges. They're not simply, oh, we sent them on relationship training and then everything changed. And I think one of the fundamental things that we did in order to change the culture was to introduce a new operating model. So that new operating model defined the different roles within the bank and it changed the pattern of relatedness from head office makes all the decisions and everybody had to, you know, a customer would come into the branch and say, I need some help. And the branch staff had to keep um, putting that decision back up to head office and it was slowing everything down. So step number one, we changed the operating model. And that started to shift the, the roles, the mental maps people had of their roles and the relatedness between the parts. But then we layered in a whole lot of systems to enable the bank to be better able to respond to customer needs. Uh, we layered in training and we kept on going and monitoring that journey for seven years. So uh, an organizational effort, you know, I had a team of almost 30 people full time working on this culture and helping leaders 
to understand the role they were taking up and helping their teams to shift their role because it doesn't happen overnight and it's not necessarily an easy change. So significant investment time and energy. But most importantly, to your earlier point, Peter, the leadership team saw their role as the leaders of the culture change. They didn't delegate it to HR to do the change for them. Right. That feels really critical and important. I mean, the, for me, as I was reading through the book, too, I was thinking like the, the you know, middle management, you know, can, can enable a change or prevent a change very, very easily. And senior management sends the very, very clear message that that allows middle management to make these kinds of choices in a way that's supportive of direction or not. Does that feel right? It feels right. And it's such a big myth. I remember my first day at an infrastructure company and um, actually in the first week I was having conversations with the executive team who were telling me we need to create a more performance-based uh, culture or we're going to go into decline as an organisation because our margins are being squeezed and our share price has plummeted. I was in a meeting with the CFO and he was explaining to me over the course of an hour how important it was to change the culture. At the end of that hour, we stood up, he shook my hand, we shook hands in a pre-COVID time, and he said, uh, Siobhan, I'm wishing you all the very best of luck in changing the culture. <laughs> And I realized in that moment that he thought that it was my role. He was outsourcing it. He was outsourcing and, it to you. Uh, you know, you, uh, good luck with it, Siobhan. And right. my first intervention in that organization was to sit down with the CEO and the executive team and to explore our roles. What is your role? What is my role? What are the different roles? Because culture change is always leader-led at all levels. But leaders cannot abrogate their responsibility for taking up their change role. Now, often they don't have the tools. And one of my frustrations was, where is the toolkit for doing culture change? Everybody's talking about it, but there's no tools. So, you know, I had to sort of then look at myself and say, well, you know, you've spent 30 years uh, researching this. Yeah, you know, I don't need to write a book. I have a job. But I was so passionate about giving leaders at all levels the tools to enable them to make culture change happen. That's great. Uh, we have been speaking with Siobhan McHale. Uh, she has written most uh, recently the book, The Insider's Guide to Culture Change, Creating a Workplace that Delivers, Grows, and Adapts. It's based on her experience heading the culture change program at ANZ Bank. Siobhan, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I've really enjoyed the conversation, Peter. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. 
Again, thanks so much for joining me today and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.